Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-GM, DM, storyteller, all the other uh, abbreviations. Miguel. And uh, once again, it's Compare and Campaign, the show, the podcast where we compare and cam- contrast the campaigns of the past and i I tried to do it um yeah we talk about the role-playing games we've run in the past and uh yeah we try to glean some ideas from our our stories and uh it's episode 111 episode 111 i'm telling the tales of coyotes aegis where they're on the road in a oregon trail inspired uh campaign adventure in dungeons and dragons fifth edition it's uh, June 14th, 2022, by the way. Meanwhile, McGill, he's getting down to the, the, the latter sessions of... The Verse. We're coming up to the end. The heroes are on... RPG inspired uh, by Firefly. Yeah. And the heroes are on a lengthy Indiana Jones-esque quest to find a lost city out in deep space. And on this episode... To find a worthy finale. That's right. <laughs> They're on a the quest to find... The golden treasure that every showrunner is after. On a quest to find a good conclusion. But, uh, yeah. Do you think that you could get the, the like, you know, everybody's after that 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 worthy finale. Do you think you could get one by just murdering Vince Gilligan? Gosh, what, by murdering Vince Gillian? Yeah, do you think it's like Wendigo rules where like, oh, you like, kill the guy like and I'll absorb his, his power? I don't know, you steal his ability to make good finales. Is, are his finales the only good finales? I, I think that Breaking Bad is just like this sort of golden, um, you know, example that everyone sort of rushes to when they're trying to think of like, well, that one ended okay. I'm trying to think. It's certainly of, not uh, Lost. It's certainly not Game of Thrones. That, well, yeah, it's, it's certainly not Sopranos. It's not The Wire. Uh, depending who you ask, like it's probably honestly, it's probably not, probably not any of those major shows that I'm thinking of. It's not Banshee. It's not Banshee. From what I can hear. Ah, uh, ah, uh, <laughs> uh, man. What else? Um, God. Hey, you know what? Here's a show that we've talked about on this podcast that had a pretty good finale. I think is Star Trek TNG. I was just thinking Star Trek is like yeah, and you you know uh, from what I understand, uh, you know Deep Space Nine ends all right. Um, Voyager, I seem to remember the finale being like serviceable. Uh, Though I don't know, I maybe I gotta follow these shows more closely to properly gauge, you know, how well they worked. Uh, eh, yes. I'll tell you, I didn't like that uh, finale to the Good Place either. Thought that was garbage. Um, I dropped off the Good Place before I got to the end. Man, yeah. What else? I mean, I guess we'll see. I'm very curious to see if. Uh, you know, Better Call Saul can land on its feet in the same way. I feel like there's a lot of pressure that's only getting more and more on Vince Gilligan as he continues to land on his feet in these projects. Like, I think, man, I, I also, like, I think it's uh, neat for them that Better Call Saul seems to be so well-received because they have not had an easy time making it between uh, 
you know, uh, uh, Bob Odenkirk having a heart attack, uh, a sandstorm destroyed one of their sets, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's been a wild one. I'm I'm saving myself for the end of Better Call Saul. I'm waiting until the final season is done, and then I'm gonna just gorge it. I haven't been watching week. To I week. actually i I haven't really been following it. Like I I found it was too emotionally heavy, especially after finishing Breaking Bad. I was like, I don't want to find out that more horrible stuff happened to these people um, beforehand, before the horrible stuff that I've already seen. Uh, so I didn't really follow it, but now that it's nearing its end, I am enjoying it as like so many things through the YouTube survey format, uh, whereby I watch the clips, I read the episode synopses on Wikipedia. It's all I got to do. I don't got to touch it. I've been, I've, I mean, I've watched, uh, all the other seasons up till now of Better Call Saul and I think it's better than Breaking Bad. Maybe that's a hot take. But it just feels so much more well-formed. Like, it knows what it wants to be. I just, uh... <laughs> anyway, I anyway, my I players are also in search of a good that. conclusion. And I didn't have to <laughs> murder right. Vince... Gi- little... Didn't have to murder Vince Gilligan to get it. Took us on a wacky little detour there. Meanwhile... On uh, the Deathlands Trail, my God, I I warned you that the players had more hardships ahead of them. This is, uh, you know, I talked about the idea that maybe the campaign is cursed. This is maybe the point where I was feeling the worst about. Oh it. man, it's gonna my happen friend. again. This, it's TPK oh, it's, number it's three. That'll be bad. Oh man, it's uh, it's wacky, oh, man. Boy. I don't know. But, you know, except the thing is that, you know, it naturally comes up on a podcast like this so often of, like, what do you do when a character dies? Or it looks like a character's going to die or, or what have you. You know, we've talked about oh this my God, someone's like gonna a die? dozen times. <laughs> and it, we talked about this like a dozen times. And so I have talked about what I did in this session from the very first time this topic came up about the idea of, like, what if one of your players dies and, like, how to react to that and, and the idea of, like, you know, when is an appropriate time to kill off a character or to allow them to come back. And so, like, what I am going to talk about in today's session is something that I've definitely mentioned before on the podcast, and it'll it'll sound familiar, but, you know, we'll get to it. I don't know if you want to go first or if I want to go first this time. I mean, I'm really intrigued uh, by what you just said. So maybe you should go first because I want to know what's about to go down. Someone's going to die. All right. Well, I I uh, hit you last time with uh, the players. They found, speaking of curses, the players had found uh, they had gone to investigate a suspicious site where they found a tree with an arrow sticking a skull to it and when they pulled the arrow out of the skull it fell apart and there was a note uh attached um and the note had some uh death metal lyrics on him but hexakila read the note and uh it, he was affected with effective like it's like a curse but it doesn't provide a bad effect really so i don't know how much you could refer to it as a curse but point being uh 
Hexakila has this necromantic enchantment on him, basically, from this note that he found. Um, and what I what he doesn't know, but what we know, is that the effect of this like enchantment or whatever uh, is basically undead in combat undead have to target him last if there are other targets for them that are not him uh like hostiles in the combat then they have to attack the ones that are not him before they attack him that note was signed bella like bella lugosi b-e-l-a um and this is all just a flashback to last time previously on uh, Al's, uh, uh, Coyote's age. But, uh, but called Tom, the last one. Bella Lugosi's dead. Well, that's a necromantic, uh, thing. What do you, what? No, I'm just what? referencing that Bauhaus song. Oh, okay. Ah, okay. Well, this one, this episode, we got Oper- Operation Putrid Motherload. The caravan is at Fort Garlunder. Uh, after the, la- the events of the last one, Fort Garlunder, named, of course, for old buddy Ambassador Garlunder, sadly assassinated. Alsaces were, uh, you know, framed for the, the assassination, got chased all around the Dwarven city of Arton about it. At the end, the Dengus uh, dwarf sergeant had to eat crow. Now he's working for the Empok as a kind of penance. That's all ancient history now. We're at Fort Garlunder. Crow, the goblin that they saved from the Sturges at the Hellfire Pit, he uh, he's like, thanks for thanks for saving me, thanks for helping me out, and uh, he he takes off because uh, they're at a they're at an official base now. He can you know they escorted him to safety basically, um, but they lose one goblin and they gain another. And it's our friend Abu, the uh, goblin Mpok agent who we've been. Seeing here and there, he's one of the faces that's just like, you know, you know, he's one of the main MPOC agents. He's the guy that was in the training sessions uh, as like a plant to observe Alsaces. He's been around since the first campaign. Uh, so he signs, he, he joins on with the caravan. Like I've said in the past, like they basically just take on everybody who wants to join. Um, while they're at Fort Garlunder, because this is like a proper, uh, location, it's not like a little village or settlement, they have access to the armory while they're here. Um, and in addition, they're able to buy repair kits here. But as I've mentioned in the past, just like in Oregon Trail, the further along the trail you are, the more expensive the repair kits get. So you save money if you buy them in bulk early on. But as you use them up to replenish your supply, it'll cost more. So they had actually, I think they took a long turn or something in the previously while they were on their journey. And so they chose to uh, replenish that one repair kit, but it cost them 40 gold, which I think is 10 gold more than the time they had to pay for the last one. Then moving on from Fort Garlunder, their next destination is Infernus Hill, a little uh, settlement on a hill 
which is named after uh, our old friend Alistair and Furnace, the warlock that was in uh, Mpox Finest, the first group. Um, also, I'll tell you that in Furnace Hill, Al's Aces have been there, and you may remember it was the time that they, uh, it was the invasion of the Deathlands, and uh, Al's Aces went to a sort of uh, meeting on a hill with a tower that was basically the uh, Nightside Eclipse people in the kingdom of Catatonia were looking for aid from their neighbors in Agalok, and there were some strange sort of hippie-like druid-type Nightside Eclipse had come to the summit and everything. The players, uh, you know, assassinated everybody, made sure, uh, you know, no help was forthcoming. But the point is, we've, we, as in people who've heard the stories of this podcast, we've, we've been there, basically. We, we know that place, this Infernus Hill. It's got a new name, got new people living there. Hmm. Alistair and Furnace so, just gets a hill. He doesn't get a whole mountain. I mean, it's got a little uh, settlement on it. Most of these people, like, they don't really... They're, they're not really getting um, geographical uh, features named after them, but they're getting, like, settlements and towns and things. Ah. Uh, you know. Uh, Fort Garlunder. Uh, you know, Camp Blank... Uh, yeah, I, uh, I think we, I think a lot of them are like forts. Um, now, now I got me going all the way back to my little, uh, notes here. Uh, let's see, Fort Garlander and Furnace Hill. We got Fort Windier, uh, Butcher Town. That's not named after anybody. That's just a song I like. Uh, Fort Kalisu, that was uh, Chessie's uh, uh, familiar. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Fort Stormblast, that's the last stop on the trail. That's uh, for our Stormblast Kendor. Oh, and we've got Port Goodberry. That's for the Goodberry family. That's got Mealy and all that. From Mealy to Nestle to Mephili in this one. So anyways, um, now the path is from Fort Garlander to Infernus Hill. And of course, we roll on the random event table. What's the random event? Well, there was a thief. Dangest, uh, there were these hobgoblins at Fort Garlander, and uh, they were supposed to be, you know, allies and uh, loyal to the to the Draelic army and whatnot. They were done at corrupt hobgoblins who done robbed the like stole from the caravan while it was uh while it was at the fort and the players are like god god dangus those shifty hobgoblins well onward on the path anyway they're not gonna double back not not at this point they're already continued on their way when they realize they've been their supplies have been stolen from but uh, they gotta they gotta deal with um, one of their first big ops on the path here on this stretch of the journey because they're gonna there's a there's a necromancer inhabiting a cave in the area nearby and they gotta deal with this necromancer. And this is one again, like I say, it's like one of the bigger jobs. Like in the past few ops, now they've mostly just been dealing with like one or two guys, and this is like a proper like mini dungeon sort of thing. 
A necromancer living in a cave? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> cave of the necromancer. I'll tell you what, it's cave. It's the cave of Bella the necromancer, the very author of that cursed script. Gosh, that, and uh, Bella Lugosi isn't Hexakila. dead. Oh, or is he? He's a necromancer. Who knows? I'll tell you what else. He's a, he's a half-orc. They don't know that either. Um, so they get to the entrance of the cave. There's a warning sign. Plague. Stay away. It's the plague in this cave. That's a dang old ruse, my friend. That's a cover-up to make sure people stay away from this necromancer's evil lair and don't disturb him in his evil deeds. Uh, they get, Once they get 60 feet in... There's a zombie, a guard waiting for them, which if anybody was fool enough to come into the cave, what had the sign that said warning plague, then uh, they're going to get attacked by a zombie. And if they're not proper hardy adventurers, that ought to scare them off. Is it a zombie plague? But it's just one zombie. So it's not a zombie plague. I don't know. Maybe it is a necro plague. Well, it's just one zombie in there. Well, I mean, I've already kind of told you it's it's a the the sign was a ruse. There's not a real plague in there. It's just a way to, you know, it's it's like, uh, stay the hell out of here, you know? Uh, way of necromancer keeping people away. But I'm surprised, you know, he's a necromancer. Shouldn't the sign say something like, it's haunted, don't steal? Ah, uh, well, no, nah, this guy, he just uh, wants him to fuck off and leave him to his, uh, to his necromancy business. And if they keep coming in, well, they got a zombie to deal with. They keep going on beyond that. There's a point uh, where the passage sort of widens out into a larger room. But as soon as you come out of that passage, there's a, there's actually a little overhang where uh, there's two zombies that if they see any intruders come down below them, they push a boulder on top of you. But there's a little indicator of this because you can see a bloody boulder as you come out of the passage. You can see that there's one like up ahead so you can sort like of one that's already that been rolled thing. down and smashed someone yeah it's that classic thing i was telling about like cliff cliffy b said when he saw me about level design he's like you gotta have a little clue when you have a trap like that and that's that's the thing is the <laughs> zombies have already crushed somebody with a boulder trap and that's their indicator that there's a boulder trap here players come through and the zombies roll another boulder on top of them, uh, prompting a dexterity save. And then after the players jump out of the way of that, the, the two zombies jump down into combat. But since they jump down about 10 feet, they actually take a bit of fall damage. So that's a bit of a bonus for the players. So the zombies come down, players fight them in close combat. So far, it's only like three zombies. No problem. You know, this is... But we got our first two parts of the little mini dungeon here. Then... We get to the storage area, which is basically where the necromancer has kept the corpses of any fools fool enough to intrude upon his sanctum. He's uh, stashed, you know, whoever got crushed by that last boulder. Boulder was just like a boulder with a blood splat. The body wasn't there. It's because he keeps his uh, bodies in a little storage area so he can make more uh, minions. In and this case, a really big flat in. minion. <laughs> And hidden in this storage area, three skeletons. Blah! Some of these skeletons aren't dead. They're already uh, animated to guard anybody who comes through the storage area. I like that you did the blah, like, you know, the, the Bella Lugosi 
Dracula, bleh. I'm just having fun with this little uh, classic. You know, the thing was, like, this was still early days for Coyote's Ages, you know? We're still very early in the campaign. The players are, like, maybe level three, maybe not even that. And so, you know, I like uh, play. This is a classic MPOC op. We've had already like one classic MPOC op where they had to cleanse a tomb. That was basically like a one room encounter sort of thing. We've mostly had just very small encounters. And this one is like, um, uh, it's a classic MPOC agents early on, low level, go into a little uh, lair of a necromancer and deal with some basic undead. Um, they proceed through the Necromancer's sort of uh, dungeon area. And it's sort of got... Uh, there's a sort of intersection of, of cavernous passages. Um, basically, you come to this middle area, and then there are two passages going in opposite directions. But both of them kind of wind around to the same... Uh, central lab area which is like the the necromancer's main uh you know lair but in this middle area with the uh intersection the players find a strange scene uh and this is i should also say uh all of this stuff that i've been doing since coyotes ages started a lot of it has been uh, small encounters taken from the Alarms and Excursions chapter of Princes of the Apocalypse. And this little dungeon is as well. Uh, obviously, I put my own little twists on it. But a lot of these things, like the warning sign, uh, the zombie trap, some basic D&D stuff, this is all from this uh, very simple low-level uh, dungeon from Princes of the Apocalypse. So I can't take a lot of the credit for this. And I really want to give them a shout-out for this little scene that the players come across at the intersection where they find three zombies who are dressed up in costume. There's a zombie who's dressed up like a princess. There's a zombie that's dressed up like a jester. <laughs> uh, and basically... The Necromancer, he likes to dress up his zombies and have them put on little plays for him and stuff. So he's got these zombies in costume here. The Jester, so in this dungeon, you're supposed to be able to find a wand of magic missiles. I had it be that the Jester's, like, a uh, slapstick rod, instead of that, he's waving a magic a wand of magic missiles around. There's a goofy <laughs> zombie in a Jester hat that's like, that's ooh, waving a magic wand. And... That gets to be uh, Mefli Goodberry's first little magic item because she's a sorceress. So, of course, uh, she has a use for a wand of magic missiles. Takes it off the uh, zombies and costumes that they beat. This is going to come back later. Uh, one of the paths that I mentioned leading to the lab does not... Uh, it has a little sort of side chamber, almost an alcove, really. And... Uh, it's one of my worst, it's one of my least favorite trap setups, um, but I think there is a certain narrative function to it. Basically, so you have, you have two chests, and the chests, if you know, it's haunted, don't steal. If you try to break into one of those chests, <laughs> triggers a rockfall trap. But I'll tell you why this is the worst kind of trap. Both the chests are empty. That's the worst kind of trap. 
is if there's a chest. Oh, the, 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 you mean there's there's no reward for actually. There's doing no it. reward. This is this is something that every ha- every once in a while happens in a D and D adventure, and I'm like, man, what the fuck? Get out of here! Trapping an empty chest. Get out of here! But um, it does kind of serve to help the players uh, learn that their host of the dungeon they're in is a huge asshole and uh, like foment uh, disdain towards that villain. Basically, I'm setting up like... And reinforce the idea it's haunted, don't steal. Yeah, and Bella's a, Bella is a, is a dick, man. He's a reclusive asshole here living with his corpses, dressing him up, put nothing in a chest and then drop rocks on you. What a dick. Can't wait to kick this guy's ass. So, the players head into uh, the lab. Like I said, um, they have sort of two paths that both wind into the lab at different points. One sort of at one end of the room and one sort of like halfway up the middle. And then there's an exit at the other end of the room that goes to like Bella's sanctum, what have you. And in this lab, he's got, you know necromantic uh, necromancy materials he's got bodies on slabs and whatnot and uh this is where he does his foul deeds and i'll tell you the first thing is that the players realizing that both paths went to the same room chose to have hexakila attack from the midpoint while uh, Mephili and Connor attack from the far point because Hexakila is the fighter. He's ostensibly the tank. McGill, can you see a problem with this tactic uh, as we're coming into it? Give me, give me the setup again. So there is a necromancer's lab. Yeah. Uh, imagine at the north end, there's an exit leading to the necromancer's sanctum. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at like we basically know there's going to be a fight in this room. I think there's like some skeletons inside or something in the lab. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, on the south end of the room, one of the paths from the intersection links up with the lab, but then the other path from the intersection enters the lab like midway between the south and the north exit, say on the east side of the room. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I got it in my mind. So Hexakila is coming into the room further up from the side, and Connor and Mephili, who are more ranged characters, are coming up through the southern entrance. This is like... like Tactically, in terms of like classic D and D, this is a fairly standard maneuver. Is like you put your fighter, your tank, where they're gonna get up in the battle, and then the enemies will fight him and not get to the and cleric the range, and the yeah. Sorcerer. The ranged fighters will pick off the enemies from afar while they're dealing with the tank, right? But there's something I've told you earlier this this recording that makes this a uh, an unusual situation which is problematic and there's like they didn't know this but one I of the this. skeletons is wearing a culturally insensitive costume no not not oh, that kind okay. of problematic <laughs> tactically problematic 
Uh, one of the players, <laughs> one of the player characters is wearing an insensitive costume. That's not tactical. Well, it's still ta- uh, tactically problematic. Um, I think you're thinking of tactfully problematic. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry. But my mistake. It's a classic uh, line from the Star Trek Voyager uh, first-person shooter Star Trek Elite Force. Is uh, After the first level, Tuvok tells you that your tactical approach was rather tactless. It's <laughs> a good one. Uh, remind me again what Hexaquila's classes, class or classes, are. He is a fighter. He's a fighter, okay. And he's doing the pincer maneuver. He's... He's coming in from the side, right? So I, I'm I'm gonna tell you because I think you're you're thinking along the wrong lines. It's something that I told you earlier this episode. Remember that piece of paper that Hexaquila read? Oh right, yes. Remember Curse. this effect? Uh oh, uh they they have to it's they have to attack everyone but him first. Undead have to attack him last. Yeah. So this is a perfect tank up front maneuver, except that the undead, they don't know that the undead are compelled to ignore him and attack the other two. And did he know this at this point? No. He okay. just he just read a spooky letter and he was cursed, but he didn't know that. He may have been having like nightmares or something, but but so this wasn't a tactical error on his part. It was just it that was just tactically it, problematic. Uh, yeah, unbeknownst to him, something they was going no to sabotage his tactics. So we we have a situation here basically where um, on the slab there is a body. The body gets up and turns out to be a zombie. There are five crawling claws in this lab uh the necromancer's little assistants that are little disembodied hands you know classic uh, nice. like i that. like the idea of them being uh assistants in a lab it's like having an army of thing from the adams family helping you out well uh, and what really calls to mind for me is you ever play the old fps blood oh my gosh yeah blood that was a that's a classic the blood, the thing that really used to freak me out in blood was there were enemies that were little disembodied hands. They were yeah. really fucking hard to hit, and they were super fast. If they grabbed you, they'd start strangling you, and you couldn't get them off. One of those just nightmare enemies. You hate them. God, hate I them. haven't thought about blood in a long time. Now I want to revisit it. I remember man, when I was younger. Man, they did a younger. great re-release on, on Steam. You should check it out. Oh, man, I should. I remember when I was younger, I was blown away by uh, when you, you can take off a zombie's head and then kick it around like a soccer ball. Yeah, classic. Um, and then I'm pretty sure like one of the one of the boss levels is like in a football stadium or something and you get to kick a head into a net. Anyway, although it's tough, I could be getting confused with uh, Duke Nukem and the football stadium. So who knows? Point is, you know, when I when I think of like a combat encounter with a bunch of crawling claws, I definitely think of blood. And uh, yeah, definitely like the idea that this necromancer, you know, he works in his lab and he has his stash of corpses that he raises as minions. But, you know, sometimes you can't sometimes it's not uh, 
uh, efficient to expend all the necromantic energy to raise a whole zombie or something. That guy's going to be stumbling around, knocking things over, what have you. It's going to be like reanimator all over again when he's trying to fucking pick his own head up. But, uh, you know, if you got a little, a few little dexterous little hands, it's like, grab that, grab that, uh, you stitch up that wound. I'm going to do the necromancer thing. I'm so happy. You don't know this yet, but everything you're talking about is going to lead perfectly into my tavern pick. All right. Damn. Okay. And then also in this lab, there are four skeletons. So immediately, um, combat starts going weird, basically. Like the players, it doesn't necessarily immediately go bad, but there's this weird thing where for reasons the players don't quite understand, all the all the undead go for the cleric and the sorceress instead <laughs> of Hexakila. And it's like, really, what the fuck? I really like to imagine Hexakila being like, hey, wait a minute, guys. <laughs> well, and, and so then Hexakila is like rushing in and trying to kill undead but they cannot sort of keep that aggro off of uh, the the other the other members of the party, and um, th- once again, the combat like started to turn on them, and this time they saw it happening. They're like, okay, Connor goes down, and Hexakila basically says like. He tells Mephili, like, get Connor out of here. I'll hold them off. And then Hexakila, like, tries to fight the the remaining undead. They manage to get it so that there's just three skeletons left. But Mephili is left dragging Connor's body out of the dungeon. Um, and Hexakila is slain in the clutches of the necromancer by the necromancer's three skeletons in his very lab in his lair. Oh my gosh. So. Uh, Connor is taken back to Zeth Hexnat. Connor is dead, but Zex Hexnat being a high level bard can cast raise dead. But the problem is it will take a few days for Connor to return to like proper health. There's basically like a type of resurrection sickness that affects the character um, after they are risen. During that time, they just don't know what's happened to Hexakila. Like they, as far as they know, he died in the hands of a necromancer in his lair. Like they weren't able to get him back. They're just trying to regroup and they're like, we'll, we'll, We'll strike back when we can, but first we need to heal Connor. And in the meantime, uh, basically what I did was uh, Alex, my brother, who plays Hexakila, um, he created a new character, a uh, bloody panda bugbear barbarian by the name of Frosh Gula. And Frosh Gula, uh, she is a zealot barbarian of Nephthys, the... Uh, Egyptian uh, sort of funerary goddess. 
And Frosh Gula, her story is basically that, like, we've already met a lot of the bloody panda bugbears. They're generally unruly. Uh, they've been loyal to the Nightside Eclipse for so long, being natives to the Deathlands, that they're very, like, they're sort of hostile towards the new invaders of the the Draelic army and uh, the Empok. But Frosh Gula... So Frosh Gula basically, as a cleric... Or not a cleric, but as a zealot barbarian of Nephthys, she has, like, chosen to be, like, the black sheep of her tribe and embrace, like, putting the dead to rest. Um, she is a sort of, like, warden of graveyards and cemeteries. Uh, she, like, carries around a flail that is, like, one of those sensors of burning incense, and that's, like, her main weapon. Um, and basically, yeah, she's, like, she's sort of, like, uh, a funeral priestess um, from a tribe of, like, unruly bugbears who have been loyal to necromancers for so long that they see her as a sort of, like, traitor to their ways. Um, but she, like, since the Draelic invasion, she has found uh, work as a sort of traitor within the Deathlands, uh, delivering shipments of goods from place to place. And so uh, Alex created her, she shows up at Fort Garlunder while the caravan, while the party is nursing their wounds, basically. And she signs on with the group with the idea that Alex will play her when the party returns to the lair of Bella the Necromancer. So when Hexakila died, was it the standard, uh, like, fail, failed the death save? Three failures on the death save? It was... Either that or, well, you, you know, the other thing is that like, so there's three failures on the death save, but, and there's like overkill, like when you take equal to your massive damage max yeah. HP in negative HP from damage. Um, but there's also damage from, there's also like every time you get hit while you are down and taking death saving throws, you take another failure like if someone keeps hitting you while you are making those saving throws you very rapidly rack up failures right. because every time you got hit you get one the other thing is i think hexakila actually rolled a one on one of those death saving throws which is actually equal to two failures two failures yeah um, so that would be a fast it, and it was one of those situations death. i'm i'm pretty sure where it was like damn the dice just said hexakila is dead and, you know, we, we talked it through and Alex decided to make a new character and stuff. But then there was also this awareness that, like, we know what happened to Hexakila, basically. Or at least I, as the Dungeon Master, know what happened to Hexakila. He died in the lair of a necromancer, a necromancer who has who keeps bodies in storage so he can resurrect them. Like, what do you think the necromancer is going to do? I think the necromancer is going to dress Hexakila in a clown outfit. Man, you are in a, actually in a tutu. You're thinking like you're you're basically spot on with what I decided to do. Um, Amazing. But, uh, meanwhile, also, 
while they're at, uh, so, so the thing is, I had said they had been robbed by these corrupt hobgoblins at Fort Garlunder, but they realized they'd been robbed and they were already on the road and they were like, well, we're not going to double back. But now they've had to double back to Fort Garlunder because they need to patch themselves up after failing. So, and, uh, Connor needs extra days to recover from the like resurrection sickness basically and so basically they spend like another three nights at fort garlander in which i keep rolling the random events and i'll tell you what two more times or maybe even three more times they got hit with the thief result and so i just continually had these corrupt hobgoblins trying to fuck with them while they were at the base which got to be this great narrative moment where they're like okay this time we're setting a trap so that at night when they come to rob us we're gonna jump these hobgoblins it was this whole thing of like jumping the corrupt hobgoblins and they're like hey like like they catch them and it's like hey well we we're you know we work here you guys are just strangers or whatever and they're like yeah well what about uh what about that stuff you've been stealing and they like find the stash and there's a big fight and everything so that got to be a little great little side random thing involved with their caravan thing while they were having this like unforeseen downtime uh because of the tpk Another thing that happened while they were uh, having this downtime at Fort Garlunder was one of the horses, whose name was Cassidy, uh, got sick. But um, Connor, once again, was able to use his life cleric skills to cure the horse pretty rapidly. Um, once the party pulls themselves together and they secure the help of Frosh Gula, who's got this cart of silver that she's like, uh, let me... Uh Take cart of silver with caravan, and then I will deliver to front lines and be good. Um, Frosh Gula joins the party, and the party returns to the necromancer's lair. And it's basically like I I pretty much ran the dungeon same as I did before because like I had the bodies, like they had seen the bodies in the storage. And they knew how many there were. And it's like, well, I took from that pool and basically replenished the encounters in the dungeon because that's what he would do, right? He'd put the zombie guards with the boulder back, all that sort of thing. But much like you sort of first saw, once they get into the dungeon, they find that the costume zombies now include Hexakila, who is a zombie. And they basically... the. Uh, the performance the zombies are putting on this time is like a farcical interpretation of Hexakila's attack on the lair where he is like a dumbass zombie who wanders into a bunch of other zombies who all just like hit him with sticks and shit. And there's like skeletons poking him with spears and he's like, uh, uh, and there's one that like looks like Bella comes and he like gloats over them. And it's like, ah, you fools and stuff. It's like he gets to, you know, he wasn't even in the original fight. He done hit the whole time and let his minions do it. But in this retelling of it where he puts on the play, he's the badass that conquers over the heroes and he's made the other zombies. He's got zombies that look like Connor and Mephily and he's uh, being mean to them. And so this time the players defeat the undead. They defeat the necromancer, Bella, the half-orc necromancer, and they rescue Hexakila so that he can be restored to life. Um, defeating Bella, the party found among his treasures 
the first crucifist weapon, after which the act, the second act of the campaign gets its name. This is the crucifist giant slayer flame tongue short sword, uh, which was among <laughs> the necromancer's treasures alongside an amulet of health and enough gold for a hundred gold each. Um, also, there was a barrel of fresh water in the necromancer's lair, which they were able to add to their caravan supplies, which is, uh, you know, an important thing to have. Um, then I, I should also say this took like maybe I think two sessions. Like there was the session that ended with the TPK. And then there was the session where they came back and they got Hexakila. They resurrected him. Um, then moving on from Fort Garlunder, uh, the, they did a little companion quest stop at a local academy. And this was important for a few reasons. Um, one thing was, uh, so first of all, going to the academy, one of the benefits is that they can find scholars who can tell them about this magic weapon that they just found, the crucifist short sword. Um, because they don't really know the story of Crucifist yet. This was like my first time introducing that element that would then uh, continue throughout the act. Also, um, I, I don't think I mentioned, but when Abe, uh, the goblin, remember there was a goblin traveling with them who when they got to the Hellfire Pit, he was a warlock of Mephisto and he then used the hellfire pit as a portal to get to hell, um, which was like the reveal that the hellfire pits could be used for that purpose by like infernal warlocks and things. Um, when he, when he left though, uh, he left them like a thank you note for their, their help. And with that, he gave them this strange, like unidentified, like black goo substance. And so also at the Academy, they were able to get the black goo identified and uh, they were able to wrap up one of their Chessie's Cupid's matchmaking quests here uh, by matching uh, <laughs> the Empok uh, Apothecary Wenton, who's supplied uh, every party through these three campaigns with potions uh, all this time. Um, he was matched with one of one of the professors at a ca at the academy, a uh, an elf by the name of Elianu, and Elianu I actually got the name of from a friend's uh, elven like swordmaster character. But so, at this little companion quest stop at the academy, Wenton gets matched with Professor Elianu. Um, two weeks pass uh, because of the need to take care of Hexakila following his resurrection from being a zombie. Um, he also needs to like, uh, he, there's a whole, I had a whole thing about how like he had to shed his skin because like after dying twice, basically he like his skin had totally like necrotized and he had to shed Gross. it like a lizard do now that he's back to life. Um, at the Academy, um, they also got two new uh, companions in the caravan. Um, one is uh, Professor Lux, who was, uh, as you'll remember, one of Odium's children. He's the one who's a changeling, but he's a small changeling, so he can only change into, uh, you know, 
small size creatures, basically, or what appears to be small size. Like, you know, he's a changeling, so he can change shape, but the shapes he takes can only be a maximum of small size. So he usually looks like a weird sort of changeling goblin. Because, you know, when in Drail. Um, but also we know Professor Lux from his time uh, training alongside uh, the party of Coyotes Aegis. And uh, he was the one who like kept insisting that he could make the guns better if people gave them their guns. He's like, I can improve this. And also he kept calling himself Professor Lux, where it's like, is he a professor? <laughs> is he credited? Who knows? He's at an academy now. Maybe he was trying to get some accreditation. Maybe he was just annoying everyone by walking around the campus saying he was a professor when uh, nobody knew who the hell he was. But there's also a tiefling prodigy who studied at the academy um, who basically had reached the limits of all this academy could teach her. Her name was Rin, and so she was hoping to hitch a ride with the caravan to uh, get to one of the bigger cities in the Deathlands to find a more appropriate use of her skills or, or better, uh, like, hands-on tutelage so she could learn uh, what the academy could not teach her, basically. Um, so as I mentioned, while they were at the academy, they were also able to get some things... Uh, inspected, one of which was Abe's Gift of Black Goo, uh, which was identified as a special sort of extraplanar necrotic substance, and using it, uh, using that black goo alongside a mundane ring, they were able to create a ring of necrotic resistance. So that was, basically, Abe had sort of given them a reward which could be turned into a magic item eventually, once they figured out what the hell it was. Meanwhile, uh, with the crucifix thing, they had this short sword identified by the staff of the or the faculty of the of the campus of the of the academy, and this got them to learn all about uh, crucifix. Basically, so have I told you the story of crucifix yet? I know I'm, I mentioned it a bit when I talked about uh, you know uh, the name of the act and everything. I'm not sure if you told me like the full story, but you told me about the character. Yeah, he's he's a guy. I remember you saying Crucifist was a guy. Yep. <laughs> um, so I have the note here. So Crucifist, he was a smith, race unknown, that ascended within the ranks of the Nightside Eclipse by volunteering to be the vessel for a demon in order to better serve the Nightside Eclipse. Um, operating in the ancient early days of the Deathlands, Crucifist forged 11 coveted weapons of war with which the Deathlands could easily put down its neighbors to the west, five swords, three axes, and three maces. Um, and I'll say, so I mentioned that the uh, Crucifist uh, short sword was a giant slang flame tongue short sword. And the reasons for this is that basically the neighbors of the Deathlands would have been trolls, ogres, orcs and whatnot and so giant slaying weapons have effects on ogres and trolls i believe because uh, they count as giants and then you've got this flaming weapon to also you know put the fear in them so basically this guy's making like magic weapons they're specifically tailored to deal with the sort of troll ogre and orc uh neighbors of the deathlands 
throughout Drail's history. Um, however, to the Smith's dismay, none of their work ever matched the reputation of an old dwarven artifact, an axe known as Orc Splitter, which the Smiths studied and worked to improve upon their entire career. And Orc Splitter is uh, an axe from uh, Princes of the Apocalypse. It is theorized that the cursed weapons retrieved by Al's Aces, uh, which you'll remember from the end of Al's Aces when they had those cursed weapons, one of which uh, Chessie had to sacrifice because uh, it was making her forget her loved ones. Uh, there, yeah, was there was the, the one tridents. that Arakendor, yep, Arakendor gave up his trident to defeat um, Abath. So it is theorized that those weapons were more recent works by the same smith, though they do not bear the signature emblem of a fist over a cross like their previous creations do. And the fist over the cross is almost always at the cross guard of the weapon. So if, like, you've got the short sword, for example, um, I think you'll even see a picture of it in my notes uh, included in this one. But basically at the cross guard of the weapon, you've got a little, like, fist... Uh, emblazoned or engraved and like from it a little cross pops out like in the middle of the blade where the blade's coming out and then you've also got the two coming out the the two parts of the cross coming out as the cross guard and then the bottom part just goes comes out of the hilt um right and i was saying uh so the the cursed items from alzaces they don't have that same mark and so that might suggest that uh, the um, crucifist himself may have finally passed on to a new form of servitor operating at a higher level of the Nightside Eclipse hierarchy, perhaps even free of direct demonic influence. Because as I mentioned, he took on this demonic possession in order to better serve the Nightside Eclipse, to sort of give him, uh, put the devil in him to make him forge better. Um, crucifist works have been traditionally prized throughout the Deathlands by natives, Tristanians, and even dragons. The final of the eleven works, a, ma- a mace of disruption, is a point of curiosity, leading some to speculate that Crucifist was attempting to thwart his demonic connections. Mace of disruption being a special type of magic weapon that uh, has extra damage effects on uh, demons. I think it actually is capable of banishing demons if you hit them properly with it. Um, regarding the newer artifacts recovered by Al's aces, those who believe Crucifist is their creator theorize that they indicate a service performed for the demon lords of the Carven Spire and the Catan working on some kind of commission or contract. Because as I mentioned, if he was possessed by demons historically, maybe he had some sort of connection with those demon lords that Al's aces fought in the Carven Spire when they, uh, had to get rid of those, uh, artifacts. Maybe it's all connected, is what I'm saying. And yeah, that was Operation Putrid Motherload. Cool. I, I love all the details of, of Bella, the eccentric necromancer who likes to put on plays with his the zombies of his, uh, I don't know, victims, his enemies. Yeah, and it's it's something that we've definitely talked about before where you're like, you know, what do you do if a character dies? And I think the best example is the time that Hexakila died and I knew exactly mm-hmm. how to have him still in play in the story, basically. 
Something you did mention that I wanted to ask you about is identifying items. Um, how often do you just flat out tell your players like what an item is, especially if it's like a magic item? Because I've found in my games, I, I've actually stopped being overly coy with the, identif the identification of magic items simply because it was getting to the point where the players would collect all of this magical gear and they'd only know what maybe, you know, a third of the stuff actually was. And then it was just like a formality. Next time we get in town, I want to go and pay to identify all my identified objects. And it's kind of like, oh, well, what's, you know, what's the point in having them be unidentified if it's just like just another chore to uh, to get them identified? Well, I, I mean, so I'm not sure this answers that question, but in my case, it's always it, there's always been the benefit of the MPOC. I've talked about this a lot in answer to a lot of your questions, but a lot of it comes back to this MPOC. It's almost like a procedural MPOC operation structure, and part of that structure is like after at the end of an operation, they're usually going back to the MPOC base where there's the armory where they have specialists who will naturally just be able to identify the items. Right. And so often it becomes a thing of like the item is only unidentified until the end of the operation. And it's just sort of like, honestly, it just becomes part of the kind of like reward payout part of the end of a session is like, you know, it's it's like when you finish a mission in Vermintide and it's like you see the bars go up and you get the items and stuff. It's like, bah, unlocked, unlocked, psh, psh, unlocked, unlocked. It's like, you know, they get back to MPOC base after a hard op and it's like plus 100 gold, plus 100 gold from this encounter, plus 200 gold from the time you killed this guy. And then you got these items, that axe, plus one axe of ice. That scroll was a scroll of burning hands. This potion is a potion of uh, giant strength. And it's like, oh, cool. And then they get to go into the next operation with all those new resources. And I guess it's just sort of a roundabout way of keeping them from using all the new gear immediately. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, so... Um, I don't know if we've talked a lot about attunement on this podcast. Is the no. idea of, like, you know... Um, by 5e rules, you're supposed to only be able to be attuned to three magic items at a time. And I think I've said before on the podcast that I do not use that rule. I measure it by how many, like, uh, like wearable slots they have open, basically. Ah. So it's like they can have a certain number of rings. They can have one helmet, one necklace, one back item, one chest item, etc., um, and that can even lead to interesting solutions where like a character, instead of wearing a belt, will just wear a rope of entanglement tied around their waist like, <laughs> because that's their belt slot. And it's like, well, that's yeah, that makes sense. Um, that's fun. My my house rule on that is I do only allow the three attuned items, but uh, unlike what the rules suggest, uh, you can have duplicates. This came up because one of my players found... Uh, I think he found four rings of protection and he was like, can I just like put three of these on? And I think technically the rule book says you can only have one of a magic item at a time. 
And I was like, well, well and like, you bling it's yourself funny because out. I'm, it's funny because I've been playing that Pathfinder RPG and that used to be a big thing of like older editions of D&D is like bonuses like that wouldn't stack. Like explicitly you can, you have two rings in that Pathfinder, two ring slots in that Pathfinder game, but like you can't wear a ring of protection plus one and a ring of protection plus one and get plus two. They like don't stack like that. And there's whole categories of AC in that, that it's like, well, you can, you can stack a dodge bonus to AC onto a protection bonus to AC, but you can't have two protection bonuses or two dodge bonuses, etc. So that's my trade-off um, is you can stack them, but I mean it takes up your takes up your slots for attuned items. So then the thing that I use attuned items for, uh, and again is this is similar to the idea of like you find a new item and you can't just immediately equip it is for me the real meaning of attuned items is the fact that you need to rest to attune to it and you can't really get the benefit of the magic item until you've rested and attuned to it and the real effect of that is it means that it stops characters from like swapping crazy items around just to get their benefits but I will tell you there is some wild exceptions to that rule based on attunement. Like I'll tell you the Puriapt of Proof Against Poison uh, does not have an attunement requirement, meaning that if the entire party gets poisoned and only one person has that item, he can just hand it around to everyone in the party and they can each put it on for one round and they will become immune to the poison and get cured and then they'll just give it back. (laughs) But to avoid things like that where people are just like juggling weapons like, hey, you have the sword now and now I'm going to have the spear and everything to avoid that kind of situation, uh, I do enforce attunement for that purpose. It's something that also it, it, it just came up recently in a session that I ran because I have a player who's just uh, rejoined. Um, but they they were not used to using crucifist weapons, which are flame flame tongue weapons. And I had actually totally forgotten until I had to remind the player that one of the things about flame tongue weapons is they're not always on fire. You have to use a bonus action to like light them up. And that's actually a very tactical addition in terms of like, you know, are you going for stealth? You don't want your weapon lit up when you're going for stealth and you certainly don't want your weapon lit up if you're going for like non-lethal or something, you know? Um, these are all interesting things to consider, you know? Uh, do you light up your sword? Uh, who's attuning to what? Uh, you know. Whatever I was just talking about before that. Oh yeah, identifying items. Finer points of identification and attunement. Finer points of in- inventory management, man. Yeah, From pretty the much. From DM side. So, does that answer all your questions about Operation Putrid Motherload? It does. What a putrid. I'll tell you, by the end of this, they were definitely level three, and <laughs> Alex went back to playing Hexakila. Uh, but Frosh Gula stayed with the caravan as an NPC. Oh, that's fun. I like that. Yeah, because she still had to deliver uh, silver to uh, the front lines. So she was in for the long haul. And, you know, if Hexakila died again, she could always step <laughs> in. that backup character. <laughs>
I guess that would have uh, roused a bit of suspicion if suddenly, if at the start of the campaign you're like, all right, everybody make your characters, and then everybody make a backup character. I mean, uh, you know, if I was Ryan Return to the Tomb of Horrors, I'd probably have people have a whole, like, roster of backup characters. So, are we heading out into the verse? Yeah, I feel like we need to start having, like, audio drops that we put in those little blanks between our... <laughs> I try to cut them out where I can. I guess we need. Uh, I guess we need fans first. Fans, if you're a fan of uh, of of comparing campaigns, send us an audio drop. Maybe we'll put it in. Hey, yeah, good idea, listeners. We're also catch us at our live show at the Foxwoods Casino. I've just been hearing a lot of podcasts doing live shows at the Foxwood Casino lately, so. I have no idea. Where is that? Getting on that tray. I think it's in Boston. Oh, wow. Okay. See you there. (laughs) Yeah, you know, like, we can say this shit. It's not like like anybody's going to look for tickets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Over in the verse. Maybe I can hype us. Maybe I can hype our pod up by... You know, including a reference to that in our posts is like, and don't forget to get your tickets to our live show at Foxwoods Casino. Yeah, maybe if we just say we're going to be there, they'll eventually have to acquiesce and give us a slot. Well, or people will be like, hey, they got a live show. This this podcast really kicking. I got to check it out. I feel like we're tipping our hand here, though. If you build it, they will come. I mean, they'll have to get to fucking episode 111. <laughs> I think if we've suckered them in for that long, we've already made the money. They're hearing this now and they're like, oh, God damn it. He's Never right. mind. They're returning my ticket. <laughs> Sorry, the verse. So, yeah, over in the verse, uh, as I was saying earlier, they're on sort of an Indiana Jones esque treasure hunt adventure. They are trying to, they've been hitting sort of a series of weird scores, uh, being stabbed in the back along the way. Uh, they, they turned an enemy or an ally turned into an enemy who turned into an ally again, tentatively, uh, Saffron, who had stolen their ship. They got their ship back and she managed to smooth talk her way into not being turned over to the authorities. Uh, and so now... Uh, the the crew are headed towards having having spent the last session performing a heist at a Buddhist temple, which gave them new coordinates to the next phase of uh, of this adventure that they are on. Uh, they are now headed out into deep space once again to try and find the location of the lost city of Shan Yu, and. They have two ships at this point. They've got the kennel back, and they also have the turducken. And uh, on board, in addition to the regular crew, uh, there is Saffron, who I mentioned before. And then also Swan and Nelly, who were two people they picked up on the dying world uh, of Jigong. And unbeknownst to the crew, Swan and Nelly have sold them out to the Alliance to collect the bounty on their heads. So as the ships head out into deep space once again, little do they know that they are being followed. They're being tailed at a distance by the Alliance. 
But of course, the players don't know that yet. Only we know that. And as they approach the area indicated by the coordinates that they found in the Buddhist temple, uh, you know, they're on high alert because they want to make sure they don't encounter any reavers out there. And they find themselves uh, drifting into an asteroid field. And of course, the hidden city is inside a gigantic asteroid. This is why it's remained hidden, is it's just hidden way out in deep deep space uh, inside an asteroid, in the middle of an asteroid field. And uh, as they are on their way there... I I would have hidden it in an astroturf. Hidden in an astroturf. Um, On the way there, I had asked them, like, so how do you spend the time? Because, you know, it's a few days' journey out of the galaxy, back out into deep space. And, you know, mostly they're just sort of hanging out, playing cards. Song was fiddling with his still, brewing up some more alcohol. And Chow was still working on the security robot. And we got Den back to play this session because the security droid is going to come back online and perform some pretty crucial tasks. So I made sure to get our cameo character, cameo player, back once more. Man, but what if Den had uh, increased his fees, knowing that your season wouldn't be complete without an appearance? Increased his fees. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he drives a hard bargain, that guy. Hey, man, he should get uh, with the, you know, the uh, Dungeon Masters Guild of uh, Canada or whatever. I, I like this idea for, you know, because there is the service cameo. How about cameo, but you can hire people to do cameos in your RPGs? Huh? it's not a bad idea. You'd probably just do that with cameo. I guess you could. It probably costs a lot more, though. It's not just like a little You wouldn't be able set. to get Paul F. Tompkins to do it, unfortunately. Why not? Is he not on cameo? Uh, he is, but he has a rule that he doesn't do, like, what you tell him. He just makes shit up. Um, but the really funny thing is that he reluctantly got on cameo and talked about it on the podcast freedom. And then like overnight he got like 800 requests for cameos. Like he, like he had said it way too cheap and so many people decided they wanted one. And uh, oh my God. it was to the point. It was to the point where, like the like the cameo contacted him and was like, "Do you want us to increase the price of your cameos?" It's like, "Yes, please." <laughs> wow. Maybe I should get on cameo. Um. Anyway, so that's the setup. That's where we're at. And uh, I should say again, at this point, I am running this adventure directly from the Serenity Adventures RPG sourcebook, Legacy of Evil. This, this whole arc has been based on Legacy of Evil, but this adventure in particular, I just ran it straight out of the book because this is another one of those location-based adventures that I've talked about before, where the whole idea is that I cut the players loose in a, a big location give them like a map of the area and just let them explore. And I actually, I always find it pretty fun doing these. Um, and of course in RPG source books and modules, you know, this exact sort of setup where it's just like a map with a numbered list and you can go room by room 
depending on where the players go. And uh, it's all sort of taken care for you. Like what yeah, they find I'll in tell the room. you, you know, thinking back to Bella's lair and everything, it's like, man, I love, there's something I love about just a simple low level mini dungeon, you know, room, 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 two paths, room, room, lair, a trap. Got some encounters. Yeah. Classic. Um, so because this is a location, you know what it is, oh. is I love to see that. I love to see that kind of thing as a player. Cause I love to know that my work's basically cut out for me. Cause I'm not going to have to do too much, uh, figuring out what the fuck I'm supposed to be doing. I like to be able to go through and just do my thing. You know, <laughs> you know, which way to go. There are only two paths. Um, anyway. So with that in mind, location-based adventure right out of the Legacy of Evil uh, campaign arc, and that's where we are. So first, the ships, uh, they are approaching the area where they think the Lost City should be located according to the map coordinates. But of course, this, is, this place is like maybe a century old, so it might not be exactly where it's supposed to be. It's somewhere in this asteroid field. So they start, they fire up the scanners and start scanning for any, you know, potential, like a, a way to hail a docking computer or something like that. And they do pick up a signal. Uh, they're like, okay, you know, uh, here's this signal from a computer somewhere nearby. We can activate it and it should engage a docking sequence and start like bringing our ship in auto on autopilot into the docking bay of Shanyu City. And so they, they enter in a code that they found uh, with the information that they got from the Buddhist uh, temple and a docking system does initiate, but as they realize like the control is sort of wrested from them as a computer takes over piloting the ships, but as they're getting closer, they're realizing that also these missile turrets are activating and targeting them. And uh, so not only are they being pulled into where they want to go, but it has been detected that they are not, uh, they are not Shan Yu. They are not members of his entourage. Their ships are not recognized by the database. And so right away, they have to start doing uh, computer use skill challenges. And it was at this point that Chow like hit the right button and the droid comes to life and the droid immediately, having been uh, Shan Yu's personal assistant droid, immediately knows what to do. And it plugs into the shipboard computer and manages to defuse the impending missile barrage just as they get within range. And it was one of those, uh, one of those things from like a movie where, you know, you've got the, the timer ticking down to when they're in range and when the missiles are going to fire and Den plugs in. And he gets to do the same computer use challenge, but he's got a huge uh, advantage to it because not only is he an android, but he also has inside knowledge of this place. So he shuts down the uh, the the missile defense system, and they they pull into like the the side of an asteroid opens up with this giant cargo bay door leading to a hangar, and they fly the two ships in, and the, the ships are are docked and then the big door closes behind them and of course everybody is immediately thinking like oh well great so we're, we're trapped excellent like we made it but we're trapped and i 
described uh, Shan Yu's city and all the technology in it, I wanted to do sort of like uh, like Portal 2 kind of a thing, like futuristic technology that's obviously kind of designer technology as well. You know, Portal, uh, all the design in that game has sort of an Apple aesthetic where it's like a lot of white and everything, but then it's all overgrown and, you know, the, the white uh, color scheme has gotten dirty over the years and nothing works it always, quite right. Uh, it all, like, I always think back to that intro to Portal 2 and how you, like, come out and you realize that all these, like, box, like, habitation boxes are just, like, open to, like, the elements. Like, man, remember that? that, mm-hmm. that that's the one that, like, it's nuts to me that image so cool yeah just like overgrown technology you know shan yu had planted plants on the inside of this asteroid in the the cavern that he's kind of terraformed to house his uh his recreation of the forbidden city and uh so but all the plants are overgrown and so you know the uh the 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 tiles on the footpaths are all broken up with tree roots bursting through them. And uh, that's the it's sort of uh, the, the weird sort of vibe of technology being overtaken by nature. And so the crew enters and they're kind of on high alert because they don't know what to expect here. And they've all got a real it's haunted, don't steal feeling about this place where they're like oh, you better watch out exactly are we going to encounter like is shan Yu going to be here in some form is he going to be a ghost or is he going to be like a cyborg or are we just going to find his corpse like what what are we going to find in this ancient place and i wanted to uh you know i keep on referencing indiana jones but it's sort of the perfect reference i wanted to really hammer home the the sort of weight of the idea that they are the only people to have walked these halls in probably a hundred years, if not more. And uh, they walk down this long corridor and all of the doors that they encounter are these automatic doors, these like bulkheads that are really heavy uh, and the kind of thing like you'd find on a submarine or something where if it shuts, like, you know, you're screwed. And, but thankfully, all of the it, most of these anyway are open and the ones that aren't open just easily open with the push of a button on the wall. But of course, I wanted to keep on also suggesting to them, like, you could very easily get trapped in this place and increase the player anxiety surrounding that idea. And so they finally step out of uh, this long corridor uh, leads to sort of a larger waiting room chamber that kind of serves almost like an airlock. They go through that, these double doors open, and then they find themselves in this massive cavernous space that does house like a recreation of the, the forbidden city of the Imperial Palace of Beijing. And it's just this like awe-inspiring sight there the the players are all stunned to see like the palace in the distance and these beautifully landscaped grounds overgrown though they might be it's just like beautiful to see like the greenery out there and these multi-tiered uh like terraces and uh so they they're just stunned by the sight 
and they walk forward and there are double doors that open into the city. There's a big wall around the city that is 10 feet tall and then these big double doors and they enter. And this is where I just handed them the map and I was like, where do you go? Look around. And the main thing that they had to sort of decide is, and it wasn't like a decision that I presented to them, but it's a decision that's here in the module. And basically, uh, in the, the flowchart of this adventure, the module outline, like the big sort of split, the big fork is, does the crew choose greed or knowledge? Are they here to steal stuff or are they here to learn stuff? And depending on how they behave, you... Oh, how will I ever decide? <laughs> depending on how they behave, different events happen. But... Uh, the, ultimately, what my plan was, uh, not adhering strictly to the module in this regard, is I was going to say, you know, they, they can start stealing stuff right away if they want. But if they put off stealing things, then I will run the crew chooses knowledge path line and then have it conclude with one of the NPCs like Saffron or Swan or Nelly stealing something to sort of trigger a ticking clock for the end of the adventure. So uh, what I'll do here is I'll just, I'll, I'll read a couple of the places within this city that they could explore. And then I'll, I'll tell you what happens when that, that ticking clock is activated. So uh, most of these places as well offer treasure, but treasure of, uh, of sort of historical importance, not easily monetized but the kind of thing that you know they they have the right fences and they have so many inns with high societies and museums and things that they'll be able to fence these goods but it's not the kind of thing where you know they'll steal a book and and just sell it to anybody and have all this money so there's the hall of military eminence a repository of shanyu's military records and you can find all of these historical documents of this ancient warlord's like military strategies and records of battles and equipment. There's the Hall of Literary Glory, uh, containing original copies of every one of Shan Yu's writings, as well as dozens of ancient texts detailing parts of history that hadn't been documented uh, within sort of common Firefly knowledge. Like the, the history of in Firefly of the human race is that at a certain point in the distant past, Earth had become too polluted and drained of its resources. And so humanity took to the stars. And then the, the story from there basically becomes a, a recreation of the history leading to the Old West, right? Where instead of people going to the New World, the, the people instead are being shipped off to these, these empty planets that have just been terraformed to create life for themselves. And that's how Serenity sort of and Firefly have their whole like old West in space kind of lore is because it's, it's using the same kind of fra framework by which the old West was founded. And uh, so in the hall of literary glory, there are all of these ancient texts about the exodus from earth and the arcs that brought people out into space and this, these texts can fill in like important gaps in 
the historical knowledge of how the verse came to be what it is. Uh, there is a place called the Hall of Mental Cultivation, and all of these... Uh, I want to know my cake and eat and have it too. <laughs> I want to have my cake and know it too. Have my cake and know it too. Um, all of these different locations have signs out front, and uh, it was a lot of fun where, you know, someone would translate one of the signs, they're all in Chinese, and I, I'd read out the name of it, and they'd be like, oh, that's pretty, like, ostentatious. And then the Hall of Mental Cultivation, uh, I can't remember which player found this place first, but I remember them being like, oh, man, this must be, like, where Shan Yu went to meditate. But instead, it's filled with these morbid frescoes and, like, torture devices, and uh, there's... Uh, a, a pedestal at one end of the room holding a book called The Limits of Endurance, which is a book about torture techniques. So the mental cultivation, this is where he like extracted information from his captives. There's the Palace of Tranquil Longevity. I remember Song being very interested in this. Uh, a storehouse of medical knowledge, tens of thousands of books, and an extensive computer filing system. Uh, I should also say that the players could communicate with each other via their radios, uh, like short-range radios, but they couldn't communicate back with the ship. Once they had gotten into the main part of the city, their ability to communicate with the outside world was just cut off. Um, and so they kept on... Uh, and here's one more. I'll, I'll say the Hall of Supreme Harmony. Now, this is Shan Yu's private residence, uh, and there's also a distinguished visitor's residence, too. And then, Man, you know what I would have 100% done if I was doing this? What's that? Was all the Shan Yu's, all the names of the places, just like Big Trouble in Little China, they'd all be named like Hell of Blank, Hell of Blank. <laughs> they referenced that in, uh, the, in, in Vampire the Masquerade, the Eastern vampires are all about that stuff, all about the different hells. And... Uh, one of my favorite lines is when you fight the Quajin, uh boss in Vampire the Masquerade Bloodline. She says she'll, she says uh, something like you'll burn forever in the hell of burrowing maggots or something. Hell of boiling oil. No, I'm hell just boiling oil. Warehouse. <laughs> yeah, you know, had I not been running this directly from a module, I might have taken more time to. Uh, well, to be you know, it's, like this is exactly. This is exactly the sort of thing that I change when I'm running from a module. Like, you know, I, I talked about how this mini dungeon I ran was basically just out of Princes of the Apocalypse. But, of course, they didn't say that the Necromancer is a half-orc named Bella or anything. Like, I, I put that stuff in. I fully admit that I get a little lazy sometimes. <laughs> just just do it straight from yeah, the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, sometimes there's something to be said for that. It's like you don't want to change things up too much so that you can easily just read it off. Yeah, exactly. You read through it once and then you're like, well, now I know what this is. So I'm just going to run it like that. Um, anyway, so the Hall of Supreme Harmony and the Palace of Heavenly Purity are Shan Yu's private residence and then a visitor's residence. And the items in these buildings are just totally priceless and also the items that have the most obvious inherent value these aren't like historical artifacts these are like you know golden statues and things like that and so this is where 
Uh, the players hadn't stolen anything yet. They'd, they'd carefully been perusing what they found. Like Song found all this medical knowledge and he was just reading it. He wasn't, uh, he was just reading it. He wasn't like stealing the books, shoving them into his bag. But Shan Yu's private residence is where I had Saffron steal something. And uh, it's the kind of thing where, uh, like at the time, the technology didn't exist, but you could totally do this now. It was sort of like there is an air tag on every piece of Shan Yu's property. So as soon as Saffron like grabs one of the statues and shoves it into a bag, an alarm starts sounding and everybody starts freaking out over the radio. Nobody, because Saffron did this, none of the players knew what was going on. They just knew like an alarm had sounded. Oh my God, what the hell is going on? Everybody runs back to sort of the central part of the Forbidden City where there's a big courtyard. And they get out, get out there and uh, a voice comes on over a loudspeaker and it's Shan Yu. And uh, this is the message. To whoever it is that has initiated the events that triggered this message, I must congratulate your persistence and audacity. You shouldn't have stolen because it was haunted. Yep. I'm appalled by your lack of respect to desecrate my home. I have to infer by your presence that my glorious empire has not fared as well as I envisioned. But such things are beyond the control of even someone as gifted as myself. You vermin are now faced with a simple choice. Which of you is expendable? And this was one of those things where I wanted to, of course... Keep making things worse. So a big timer starts counting down. And I started counting down out loud as the players were trying to figure out what to do. The droid, uh, Den's assistant droid, you know, sort of goes like, you know, where's the nearest computer port? Ports into it and finds out that there is a keypad in Shan Yu's residence. It's hidden. I'm a bit surprised that Shan Yu's voice didn't trigger the droids like sleeper programmer or something. Nah, because the the players have been reprogramming it because it, formerly when they turned it on, it would just go berserk and attack everybody. This is a very I old feel like droid. that there's like a chance for like a little, you know, voice activated secret bit of code or something there. Well, you are going to get something like that. Because the droid goes, well, the only way to turn off this alarm and this countdown to whatever it is, you know, it's a countdown to self-destruction, obviously. The only way to turn off this countdown and turn off the alarm is to access a, a keypad hidden in Shen Yu's home. So everybody goes to Shen Yu's home. They find the keypad. Chow goes like, okay, I've got this. He enters in a code that the, uh, oh, and the, the keypad is one of those things where like they pull back a panel and it's way set way far down into the floor so he has to like reach down up to his shoulder to access the keypad he enters in a code the code shuts down uh the alarm but then clamps grab on to chow's arm and he's stuck there and so this is what uh shan yu is saying like which of you is expendable and he's basically forcing the players to sacrifice somebody uh if they want to escape as long as Chow is stuck with his arm, you know, in that that hole next to the keypad. The doors are accessible and they'll be able to get out. But in order to do that, they'll have to leave Chow behind. And so I create this sort of catch 22 where it's like a dead man switch. Essentially, Chow is has activated the dead man switch. Everybody can get out now, but not him. 
And of course, the players don't want to leave Chow behind. So their immediate thought is like, okay, let's get back to the ship now that we can get back to the ship. And maybe we've got something there, some cutting tool or something that will allow us to get back here and get Chow out. So everybody's freaking out. There's still a countdown timer going. Seems like self-destruction is about to happen. Chow is fearing for his life. Everybody runs out of the Forbidden City back towards the docking bay. They, you know, through the airlock, running up the long corridor, and I was dragging this out as much as I could to continue building tension. They finally get to the docking bay. They open up the doors to the docking bay, and there is an Alliance ship docked in there as well. A squad of Alliance soldiers there, guns pointed at them. And then leading the charge is another character, this time from uh, the Serenity movie. It is the operative. Did you ever see the Serenity movie? Uh, it's been a very long time, so I'm not sure I'd pick out my details like that. The operative is the main antagonist of it. Uh, he's played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. Uh, he's just like a real badass kind of like secret agent guy. He fights with a sword a lot of the time, but uh, he means business, and he's like a real badass in that sh- in that movie. So. I left this one on a cliffhanger, like they round the corner and then all of them skid to a halt because there's the Alliance that caught up with them. And not only are the Alliance there, but they are being led by sort of the ultimate badass of the Alliance. The final boss of the, the operative. Universe. That's right. The Haunch Lord. It's not the Haunch Lord. <laughs> but that's where it came to a close. Another cliffhanger. Well. Luckily, we've taken up lots of time, so I think we'll be good to just do your tavern pick and then wrap up without me needing All to right, come up with anything, because I didn't come up with anything. Do I want to... Should we head directly to the tavern, then? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so... For the tavern, I found a really fun piece of D&D history. Uh, there was an album, like a record put out in 1985 called First Quest The Music. And the idea of First Quest The Music is that uh, it's like an album of music. Some of the tracks have narration at the beginning. And then included in the liner notes was a D&D adventure module that you could play. So like you buy this album... It gives you an adventure module complete with maps and uh, some monster stats and everything. And then you can play that adventure while listening to the music on the album to help score the goings on, score the game. And I thought this was hilarious. Uh, I will, of course, link to it on our uh, WordPress. It's especially funny because it's called First Quest. But let me tell you, this is not a a beginner level adventure. Here's a blurb from the liner notes. First quest is an adventure for a very high level party. Even characters of 15th level or higher will find it difficult. Consequently, Consequently, players may wish to use one or more of the characters set out below. uh, And they give you some options for characters that you can choose from to play but first quest level 15 characters 
Why is it called First Quest? I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I like, I was hoping you would tell me. No, there's now the, it's just a mystery. That that what I just read is is like all we get. Uh, in part one, the party will be continually harassed by the minions of the old gods as it makes its way across the Fenial fields and follows the river Osgorum upstream to the Goblin Kingdom in search of the entrance to the underworld. Legends tell that the chalice can be found by passing through the entrance to the underworld, and local inquiry will reveal that only the gnomes know where the entrance is. In order to gain the gnomes' trust, the party will have to vanquish nests of zorns who have been gradually forcing the gnomes out of their underground homes. Unfortunately, the entrance is in the middle of a hobgoblin kingdom. Uh, now, Tom, here's a fun question, because, you know, it's got a, a list, the monster roster for part one. Uh, there are six shades. There are a couple dozen Gorn, or Zorn, rather. How many hobgoblins do you think uh, the players are going to go up against in part one of this two-part adventure? Uh, 312. 250. Hey, I was only over by 62. It's a lot of hobgoblins. <laughs> 250 yeah, hobgoblins? Area of effect spells. Yeah, really. This quest was made with a fucking wizard in mind so he can cast fireball. And 15th, the first quest with 15th level characters. Along the way, the party will be joined by monks and elves. Each night, the party will be silently attacked by shades. Um, Each night, my God. <coughs> yeah. <the> rest. <laughs> and then part two of the adventure is a, is a complete contrast to part one, involving a traditional dungeon exploration. The numbered areas on the map provided uh, are occupied with traps or monsters that are referred to in the notes below. The map shows tunnels and corridors leading away from the main route, but there are no monsters or traps listed for those areas. The entrance to the underworld is through the mouth of a rock formation. And the, the vague quest here, as I mentioned, is they're looking for a chalice. The chalice can stop the ancient evil, but it's never really explained how. <laughs> it's up for the DM. I mean, that's just like, uh, I think it's like uh, the first... One of the first ever, like that D&D uh, &D RPG on Play-Doh. I'm pretty sure you're just trying to get a chalice. Yeah. It's very basic. Um, get the grail. Chiron the Boatman is here. <laughs> they encounter him. Uh, he will transport. So you, And you, you said that the, the Necromancer's lab earlier was going to play into this. What, what's this you're talking about? Oh, okay. So... Uh, once they get into the entrance to the underworld, they encounter the living dead. And uh, so there are a bunch of zombies here that are being uh, controlled by a necromancer and his sons. Uh, the necromancer is called Kios. Kios and his sons. What kind of, what kind of uh, underworld is this that... There's necromancers and undead in it. You should be uh, at rest if you're in the underworld. Here, let me... It's a figurative uh, underworld. Uh, also, what, what? how do you spell that guy's name? K-Y-U-S-S. -S. That's Caius. That's the freaking... He's, he's a huge uh, deity in Dungeons & Dragons. He's the Lord of Worms. Uh, it, oh, gosh, it is Caius. And... and 
And there's a band named after him, the band Caius. <laughs> uh, here, I'm going to send you a map. This is the map of the underworld. Sleeve 2, side A. I like that. Mm-hmm. So it's basically just like a dungeon? Yeah, it's just a dungeon. And Kai- This ain't no proper underworld. This ain't like a mythic quest like Hercules. No, on. look at the pathetic little river that Chiron is going to transport you across up near Area 1. Like, his boat oh is almost gosh. as long as the river is wide. He's like, yeah, I, uh, you know, most of my trip takes me around other more impressive areas. So this is just a little... Caius and his sons are in Area 3, and they also have a bunch of zombies there. Once all the party have passed the gates, Caius will distract them by letting... The sons of Caius are usually like big worms or people with faces made of worms and stuff. Well, this one explicitly says they are the living dead. And uh, now here, Tom, here's something that, that ultimately, like, you know, the, this is just a very basic sort of dungeon crawl. You can see that there is even uh, there are dragons in some of the passages in Area 6 here. And you can see sort of how they get to the, the chalice room in Area 10. It's a, just a really basic, uh, straightforward D&D adventure. Uh, aside from the fact that it's incredibly high level. But some, here's something about this that really blew my mind, because I was listening to the music, and it's not great. Like, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty simple synthesizer music with occasional bits of narration. But I wanted you to take a listen to this track in particular, the track called The Living Dead for Area 3 of Part 2, I wanted to see uh, if you recognize anything from it. The company encounters the legions of the damned, guardians of this netherworld, the shades and wraiths of Hades. Recognize that? No, I don't think so. So that this this totally blew my mind when I came across it, because the start of that track I was like, this sounds pretty familiar. And I listened more, and I was like, this is really familiar. And then it just turned into the theme from the movie Return of the Living Dead. I I just saw in the comments a remixed version of this is used in the film Return of the Living Dead Part 2 The Dead Return that wasn't a remix this song copied the Return of the Living Dead theme and just changed it up a little bit the remix theme in the second film is a remix of the original no but the thing is they've got it all wrong these guys in the comments have got it wrong so uh, the theme is in the original Night of the Li or Return of the Living Dead and I was like, yeah, like this is this is the Trioxin theme. This is the the theme from one of my favorite zombie movies, Return of the Living Dead. What is the deal with that? And I looked into it further. It's composed by this guy, Dennis Haynes. And I was like, Dennis Haynes? That's not the name of the composer from Return of the Living Dead. And then I look it up, and the composer from Return of the Living Dead is Francis Haynes. And so I did some more digging. 
And sometimes Dennis Haynes went by Francis Haynes. He totally recycled the song that he composed for First Quest, the music, for the soundtrack of Return of the Living Dead. That's wild. Um, you know, it, uh, God, it was just reminding me of something. Oh, you know, cause, cause I mentioned reanimator earlier in this episode, but then one of the best things about reanimator is the way it just shamelessly rips off the theme to psycho. Right. Uh, <laughs> I love the red letter media bit where he's like, uh, and I really, I really enjoyed the music. There was just something uh, about it. Um, it's really good. It's just, uh, something I noticed about it. Uh, it's just psycho. It's just it's the just theme psycho. To psycho. <laughs> yep. Uh, here's one that is not ripped off from anything else, but I really thought you would like this. This is the Hobgoblins track. This is nuts. This is, uh... the type of music like this like the soundtrack to like uh like it's the kind of like dinky little sound like under underplayed soundtrack that's like the music in napoleon dynamite (laughs) yeah it kind of is just the like rinky tinky synthesizer music but i really like the like playing that and imagining a bunch of hobgoblins like having a big party like it made me think of uh it it all gives me a real tech noir vibe it's like you go to the hobgoblin city as this tech noir i was thinking of uh of labyrinth anytime in the movie labyrinth where they cut to the goblin king's castle and just all the goblins are having a big party this is the kind of music that, that I imagine. Do, 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 do. <laughs> anyway, I thought this was just the coolest, funniest relic. First quest, the music, the D&D record. And then the cherry on top was discovering that Dennis Haynes, a.k.a. Francis Haynes, recycled some of his work for Return of the Living Dead. And uh, it really like made my head spin when I was skimming through the tracks and I was playing the Living Dead thing. I was like, wait a minute. I know this. I know this. Oh my God. Uh, and so we'll link to it, of course, and you can find an article on it on uh, this guy's blog called Blognomicon. And the whole playlist of First Quest, the music is available on YouTube. And that's my tavern pick. All right. And if you want to find that stuff, we'll have the links to it on our show notes on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. If you want to get in touch with us or see when we post new episodes, you can follow us on Facebook at Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Uh, Other than that, I mean, uh, if you have, if you only learn one thing from this dang podcast is don't steal because it's probably haunted. Uh, not me level up your characters use the whole meat but don't steal it because it's probably haunted haunted meat not meat <laughs>